Welcome to the Decipher Podcast. My guest today is Mike Bailey from FireEyes Flare Research Team. Uh, and I wanted to talk to Mike a little bit about uh, this big project that they just uh, published last week on the uh, Carbonac source code. They did kind of a deep dive analysis of uh, the source code that they found uh, online. So, Mike, thanks a lot for joining me. I, I really appreciate you taking some time. Hey, yeah, thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So um, you guys did like a four-part uh, blog series on the Carbonac source code with a whole bunch of details. I would encourage everybody to go read that on the FireEye Research blog. It's really well done. Um, and I wanted to kind of start at the beginning. So how did you guys kind of stumble across the source code in the first place? So Nick Carr was responsible for that. And um, I guess not to speak to the secret sauce just from an OPSEC perspective, but he was searching for certain observables that the Carbonac authors might not have known about that might have allowed us to find more samples. And instead of finding more samples or more intrusions, he actually found a RAR archive, two RAR archives containing Carbonac source code and builders. Okay. And did he know what he had found once he uh, started digging oh, yeah. into it? <laughs> He's, he submitted okay. it to our malware analysis <laughs> system and said, Carbonac source code, please analyze. And, uh, yeah, our threat <laughs> intelligence team was like, yep, uh, let's definitely pick up on anything in here that's not in our public reporting or in our threat intelligence and figure out if there's any way we can prote protect our customers better. Okay. And that was a while ago, right? Like Nick found this. It, it yeah, wasn't it was recently. quite a while ago. In fact, from what we've seen, it doesn't seem like they're still using Carbonac actively or perhaps not as much. It uh, looks like they've moved on to a lot of the tools that are built in and integrated with Carbonac. So Carbonac has features for running Metasploit. And some of the binaries that I found accompanying the source code look like they're from Metasploit. Um, so it looks to me like, looks to everybody, like they've moved on to publicly and commercially available tools. Okay. Which is something that happens, you know, when, uh, when tools become really public, a lot of times you'll see groups move off of those. Um, so maybe we should talk a little bit of back, back up a little bit and tell people, uh, what Carbonac is and the group that that's using it. Carbonac has been around for a while, um, pretty well-known backdoor and used by a really well-known APT group that has a bunch of names, Fin7, a few others. Um, what do we know about this group in terms of like who they target and what kind of operations? Uh, anybody who makes money. With? So they're after, they're after credit card numbers <laughs> largely, but uh, the tools that they have and some of the behaviors that have been observed lend to the inference that they're a little bit more opportunistic than to, than to focus on one particular group. So if they don't find what they want in the environment where they've landed, it seems like they find other opportunities to get money out of that victim anyway. So they've targeted things, including Blizzco, which is a Russian payment system, kind of like Venmo or, or PayPal. They've targeted um, NSB POS. Uh, there's some other um, POS software that they've targeted in some of the binaries. Um, what else did they target? Various things. And those are just the things that are coded into it. I mean, they'll really target anything it looks like. Um, there was another, oh, IFOBS, IFOBS, or IFOBS, or, or I'm not sure how it's pronounced, but that's another payment system that they were targeting. And they have a okay. Delphi oriented targeting like they can find these um, delphi oriented artifacts that are part of this program that's written in delphi that people use in order to scrape information and observe and and get stuff okay and it, i think when people think about apt groups in general they kind of think that they're 
mostly doing kind of cyber espionage stuff and not so much financially motivated stuff. Um, so the yeah, the FireEye name for this group is Fin7, and that, there's a dichotomy between advanced persistent threat actors that are espionage oriented and those that are financial crime oriented. And and Fin7 is is demarcated as Fin that's financial. Yeah. So so there's definitely groups that are doing all kinds of different stuff. And just, you know, APT doesn't necessarily mean, you know, uh, some intelligence agency somewhere. It's just, yeah, the term, the term means they're not your, they're not, um, I guess you'd say it's an organized group and they're not just sloppy operators. They're likely to stay in your environment that if you don't successfully scope the entire intrusion and really kick them out and really remediate it, uh, you might later find that, well, you didn't really remediate it. They're, They're, persistent in that if you if you kick, if you think you kicked them out by getting rid of that one piece of malware that's where you failed because you failed to scope the full investigation based on all the artifacts and pivot to all the systems that are affected gotcha okay so what was the actual analysis process like for this once you guys uh started digging into it how how long did this take and you know what what was it like digging into it well, first, I got the literature that existed. So, I, you know, Monday I showed up for work. I took a look in our queue and I saw that the next ticket was this huge RAR archive of source code. And I said, okie dokie, I'm next. So I'll take that. So I took that ticket and I opened it. And the first thing I did was to go and find the existing literature, both publicly available and privately. So we have our own malware reporting that we keep private. Uh, some of it that we also publish for our threat intelligence customers who purchase finished intelligence products from us. And so I accessed all of that. I read all of it. I found Kaspersky's great report, The Great Bank Robbery. Um, mm-hmm. I read the blogs that were written by Tom Bennett and Barry Van Gierich, FireEye's own. And then I read our level two reporting, which was really detailed technical reporting that Tom Bennett made when we first saw this and we first decided we had to report on it internally to understand what, what the threat was. And then after that, I just looked at all the files and built an index of words that seemed like keywords or key concepts. And eventually I got a feel for what source files were significant for what reasons. It's a really broad source code base. So it was, I was, at first I was, I would use the word aimless and I would unashamedly, unabashedly say I was aimlessly wandering through the source. Like what's interesting? What is there here? Like taking an inventory, just inventorying all the different concepts and features and facets until I had a feel for really uh, the major things that I would be able to go through. And after that, I became more organized and was able to say, hey, all right, I see there are passwords, so let's get all the passwords that we can find. I see there's key material. Let's go find all the key material. I see that there might be some artifacts suggesting that um, that the developers had these usernames. Let's go find all the username artifacts we can. And then I kind of went through in each channel of thing and tried to get all the information I could. Okay. And so how long are we talking about here? You said, you know, you showed up one morning and there it was. And, you know, I I imagine this was a a weeks or months long process from start to finish. It was. And that was mainly because I had different tasks that I was doing. And so I would go from doing this to for a week, I'd have something where it was like an offsite or, you know, it was the holidays or something. Yeah. And so it took me, I actually have the statistics. It was something like 91 hours to do the source and a limited review of the binaries, which were, there were about 14 pieces of malware um, and 40 total binary files that I took a look at in addition to that. So in about 91 hours, I looked at all the source code, taken my inventory, looked at all, you know, done an audit of each different kind of category of of finding that I wanted to come up with, uh, network-based indicators, et cetera, and also done a quick triage of each of the pieces of malware that I found, which each had their own little pieces of malware inside of them, because as you know, malware is like, 
gremlins. You pour water on it and more malware pops out. So you get to analyze that. So um, that was 91 hours. And then our threat intelligence team wanted a little bit more analysis on those binaries to get more certainty. So I spent 94 hours looking at the binaries in a more thorough way just to be totally sure of my analyses. Oh, my God. Yeah, that's a tremendous amount of work. Jeez. Um, and were you doing this mainly on your own or were other folks teamed up with you? No, when we take a ticket, it's usually solitary. I think that for special cases where it's necessary, we might tag somebody else in to kind of divide and conquer. But in this case, I, I guess I didn't think of it. And it wasn't, it wasn't <laughs> urgent enough for us to get more people in on it and do that. So I just chugged through it myself. Okay. All right. So as you started digging into it, what were the things that, if anything, really kind of jumped out at you, things that were surprising? Because I know that FireEye had done a lot of research and analysis on Carbonac in the past, as had other companies you mentioned, Kaspersky. But was there anything that really kind of popped up and you're like, oh, wow, didn't expect that? I think probably the thing that impressed me the most or made the biggest impression on me, I should say, is the amount of code reuse and how productive they were in pulling other people's code and accomplishments into this source code base. And so I didn't find anything that looked like it was a new exploit or anything that was undocumented in general. Like a, a lot of the stuff that they did was something you could find on a forum somewhere, but then they pulled it in and they put it into its own namespace and gave it a home and mashed it right into the source code base. And they did that with many, many, many things, including Mimikatz, which is a publicly available tool uh, the source code is out on GitHub. Yep. Uh, they did it with several exploits. They did it with several privilege escalations having to do with UAC, which is user account control. Um, and they also, in addition to that, their use of publicly available tools surprised me as well. It shouldn't have, um, but it did. Just the amount of um, integration with Metasploit, for instance. Like the the source code yeah. command that we found in the malware that Tom Bennett documented um, or I'm sorry, the, the shellcode command that Tom Bennett documented, it actually was for a very specific piece of shellcode, and that piece of shellcode was Metasploit. And we, we didn't realize that until we looked at the source code, and it was clearly stating that it was downloading TinyMet. TinyMet is a stager for Metasploit, but it turns out that the real file that I found that was a binary file was an encoded copy of Metasploit, not TinyMet. So they weren't using the TinyMet stager for Metasploit. They were directly using Metasploit. And the reason why it fit together is that it populates this uh, register, the EDI register, with a socket before it jumps into the shellcode. And then the shellcode expects that the EDI register in the microprocessor has this socket descriptor loaded in it. And if it does, it's going to communicate with the server further to actually begin operating Metasploit. So that's interesting. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it is. Um, is it unusual for you to see that combination you mentioned of, you know, a whole bunch of publicly available tools kind of pulled into, um, you know, a, a group's private. For me, it is. Like I've seen other source code bases like Ghost and Zeus, and I didn't notice anything as significant and prolific as that. So in this case, it was, it was a lot of code reuse. And people know that Carburp was, uh, like some of the Carburp code was reused in Carbonac. So I saw some of that as well. But yeah, the the mm -hmm. overall amount of it really did impress me. In my in my technical reporting, I had at least 15 references of other source code bases that they pulled from, but I don't think that that's a complete listing. I think there was just an overwhelming amount of stuff that I couldn't address while I was writing it up. And does that do you think that's a function of the operators just using what was out there and what what works or is it I mean laziness what I mean maybe a combination of both? <laughs> 
I'd, I'd call it productivity. I think that it, it's probable that the operators specified the requirements to the developers and the developers said, yes, I can pull that exploit in. And maybe they said, pull in as many escalations as you can. And the operators went to exploit DB, <laughs> pulled down as much code as they could or found all the proofs of concept or all the blog articles to be able to adapt those into proofs of concept and then integrated them in. And then Bob's your uncle. Yeah. Um, I, I wouldn't call it lazy or sloppy. I would say, if I were in their position, I suppose that would be a wise way to go. Pull in what other people have done. Unless you have your own vulnerability research house, like a bunch of researchers attacking different software to find these escalations, you're not going to come up with original stuff. Yep. So this this bespeaks the... I mean, to me, this suggests that they didn't have a group of researchers doing that kind of work. They just were pulling stuff together to do what they could with what's out there. So it's a question of efficiency. It is. And it's. I think it's a question of how big of an operation you have like an espionage operation that's state funded would have even more money than a cybercrime operation and probably i think that must be the difference yeah because <laughs> cybercrime they're definitely out there to make money and they're making a lot of money they have a lot of money they can pay people pretty well but i i clearly didn't find anything new here so it doesn't seem to me like that that kind of group might be doing that kind of research is there do you have any concept of how old the the source code that you guys looked at is it looked like it was in development up through 2017 when it was uploaded to Virus Total, okay. based on the, the dates. Yeah. All right. So fairly recent. I mean, it's not like it's a 15 year old uh, code or anything. Right. Um, yeah. It wasn't wasn't abandoned in 2010. I don't think. Okay. All right. Cool. Um, it, one of the things that kind of intrigued me was the last uh, piece of analysis you guys you guys did on the video player. Um, that was embedded in there. Can you tell me a little bit about how this video player works and what they were using it for? Yes, Tom Bennett did this work. And the premise is that the Carbonac backdoor has the ability to record video. And the reason why is to observe people in financial and retail environments operating the software that controls where the money goes so that the criminals could figure out how to get that money and how to create false transactions or what they might need to do, whatever they might need to do to transfer that money to themselves or create fraudulent transactions, whatever the case may be. Mm -hmm. And so they would record these people, normal people, operating the software, basically shoulder surfing employees. It's like uh, job shadowing, but unauthorized. Uh, I, th I think that it might be Tom's term. <laughs> That's pretty <laughs> but, good. Yeah, they would do this unauthorized job shadowing and then go review the videos and figure out how to do their, their criminal stuff. So we actually came upon a small corpus of videos and wanted to replay them and see what the content was. And we having our hands on the source code really helped because we were able to go look at the video player and see that there was something that was commented out. And it was a, just a difference in the format from the, an older version to a newer version where they, I believe, used compression or versus didn't use compression. And I think Tom was able to just take the source code that was commented out and go comment it back in and maybe adjust a few other things, rebuild it, and actually play the videos and watch them. And we watched one of the videos and I was... I was struck by how familiar this looked. It looked like an operator who was preparing for an operation, getting ready for a red team, getting the commands already, making sure the persistence is going to work, you know, checking the screenshot command that they're planning to use. Kind of like I would do when I was in the Mandiant red team preparing for an operation. And I'd be testing things out, making sure Windows isn't going to get in my way or surprise me, just making sure things are going to work before go time. So it was interesting to see that because we didn't see them launching Carbonac or doing anything involving Carbonac. It was all kind of vanilla stuff, publicly available. And there are a couple of possible reasons why, but um, it's interesting to me to think about the fact that Fin7 was found operating this cyber security company called Combi Security, and they were hiring 
apparently or potentially unwitting cyber operators to perpetrate these crimes. I, I believe that's my interpretation and our interpretation yeah. of what's going on uh, to perpetrate these crimes, potentially unbeknownst to them that they were actually crimes rather than willing organizations paying them to do this. It might have been that these were unwitting collaborators in financial crimes. And so I wonder if, A, maybe they were just using the tools that they use more often and they were kind of going away from Carbonac. But then why would they be recording mm -hmm. that with Carbonac? It's like, B, maybe are they recording their operators, you know, preparing for their operations? And this was just a sampling of like, what is my, what is my employee doing? Are they getting ready or what? I don't know. I don't know if who was shadowing who here, but it was kind of curious to see this particular content in that video. So it's like a quality control thing for them to just to make sure their operators are doing what they're supposed to Could do. Could be, I don't know. I certainly know that in some <laughs> environments um, where software exists, uh, employees get monitored. So maybe, True. maybe here too. Yeah. Have you seen anything like that before? That kind of like screen recording and, and video playback? Yeah, I think that I've seen some uh, remote VNC kind of software uh, that can do things... Um, remotely so you can view and interact i don't know i don't know if i've reversed one that did video recording but I, i'm pretty sure that that's out there okay and that's just a way for them as you said to kind of like get a sense of how the victims are actually using the machines that they're on in this case that was the case yeah that was what in a lot of cases was done not in the video that i think was the most interesting but um in fact come to think of it um, Cobalt Strike has something similar where it'll send you several screenshots in sequence, which is kind of like a video if you yeah. have them if you have them coming back fast enough. Right? Yeah, sure. Um, so, what's next with with this? Are you guys going to do any more analysis, or did you kind of hit like the uh, hit the end of it, and you're gonna you know that's kind of that's kind of it? Um, personally, I think we both think that that's it for looking at Carbonac. We don't think we're gonna have any more insights to gain. If we did have a Carbonac sample being used and we had to investigate what was happening and it was in some corner of the code that we maybe didn't understand as well, which would be unlikely because I think Tom did a pretty exhaustive analysis. But if we did run into any code that we wanted to maybe double check against the source code base, we'd probably use it as a resource. Yeah. Um, did you guys have any like hesitation about sharing um, the, the repositories that you found or was it just kind of like, listen, we need to put that out there so other people can have a look at it too? I think the there are some in the security community who, and respectable minds will disagree, there are some who believe that this is unconscionable and are not happy with it. But there are multiple security companies who have published articles that say, hey, this means that if we ever see this again, we can know exactly what we're dealing with. It's a known quantity. And it's overall a good thing for the security community. I personally think that it's out there on VirusTotal. It's been there for multiple years. And so people already knew about it, some people who were probably weren't mm -hmm. saying anything. And I think shedding light on such things is valuable. So I generally don't, I don't support like releasing source code, new source code for like Trojans necessarily for myself. If I write a Trojan, it's going to be for use for FireEye and I'm not going to like release it to the world because I just don't think there needs to be lots and lots more out there. But this was already out there and it's, yeah. it's already out there and it's a real threat that was used against real companies. So I think the overwhelming value is to have that source code to refer to if we ever see this. Yeah. Is there any way to know whether the operators had an idea that the source code was out there? You said that this wasn't necessarily being used, uh, you know, right up until now, but any, is there any indication from, 
what you guys have seen that they knew this was out there before you published the the findings? I don't know of such an indication, but I will say that I roll it around in my mind from time to time, wondering if the reason why they've switched over to publicly available tools was because, hey, those tools offer everything they need, or was it maybe because they knew that this source code was leaked? Maybe that was done deliberately and vocally, like maybe somebody did that uh, to hurt the organization, and they said, "Well, fine, we'll just start using." cobalt strike <laughs> i don't know yeah um that would be the only thing like the only thing that might cause me to infer that they knew that it was out there but otherwise i don't know of any evidence to that effect okay yeah we've seen that in the past with things like zeus and some other um banker trojans that where the source code has gotten burned by various people but um this this was a pretty interesting case to me because it was sitting there on virus total for a couple of years before anybody noticed publicly yeah, whoever put it out there didn't announce it. And that's why I think that that supports the theory that um, some people at FireEye had, which is that somebody accidentally uploaded this as opposed to uploading what they intended to upload. Sometimes um, bad guys will put together their implant or their backdoor, and then they will, depending on what their OPSEC profile is, they might upload it to VirusDoll and see if it hits all the scans. And if it doesn't, right. then they'll proceed. And if it does, then might tweak some more. I don't know if that was the case here, but the fact that nobody came out and said, hey, by the way, I've just uploaded all this source code. So, <laughs> you know, to give any kind of a middle finger to these guys, because nobody said that, it seems like more likely that somebody accidentally uploaded it. Maybe it was the wrong thing that they didn't mean to upload. And they, you know, it was too late by the time they actually noticed that they had done that. Not sure. Yeah, it sounds sounds more likely, I think. Yeah. All right, Mike, listen, thanks so much for your time, man. This was very cool. And uh, like I said, I thought it was really nice work that you guys did on this. I know, it, as you said, it took you uh, <laughs> the equivalent of a few weeks of man hours to do this. So uh, very good stuff. Yeah, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. All right, take care. All right, you too. Bye.